over his head when we left. I'm not sure. It rained later that day. And the next day, when Beatrice and I had that fight about whether or not we should pay the Reverend's fine, it drizzled slightly with just a few flakes of snow. Thank you. And one way the American Penn Center from time to time has attempted to help is by asking an established writer to recognize and introduce a less established one. You notice I didn't say a younger one. It doesn't always work that way. I recall Graham Greene's rueful remark, as far as critics are concerned, you are a young writer until you are 40, and thereafter a writer who has never fulfilled his early promise. In the past, some of our members' choices deliberately have been of writers of a certain age. I recall Degas' remark, everyone has talent at 25. The difficulty is to have it at 50. <clears throat> Through these evenings, we hope other writers, editors, publishers, and an occasional agent will encounter work they might otherwise have missed. Past presenters have included Arthur Coppett, Maureen Howard, Denise Levertov, John Ashbery, Bernard Malamud. Among the new writers who were presented were Jory Graham, Mary Robison, Stephen Philbrick, J.D. McClatchy, Annette Jaffe, all of whom went on to publish books and have made names for themselves today. One of the pleasures for me has been to see just who will choose whom. In literature, as in love, we can be astonished at what is chosen by others. Generally, the surprises have been pleasurable. Good writers usually are good readers, and not unlike the mule who can smell fresh water ten miles away. To introduce our first draft of fresh water, but we hope not a first draft, is the poet Louise Glick. Sylvia Moss's poems for about five years. When you've been able, over such a span, to return to a body of work regularly and be regularly and freshly fascinated, you may begin to call the work inexhaustible. These poems are terse, elliptical, intimate, mysterious. In the words of Emily Dickinson, they select their own society. In the words of Yeats, they are cold and passionate as the dawn.
people are... Because he is crying, I call my son to the window. Andromeda, the twins, the ram, slide to their places in the sudden dark. We find Orion's belt, the blue star that is his shoulder, and the boy forgets he is afraid to sleep. This is the winter sky, chalked in, safe, familiar as a map of Earth. The great hunter, always in pursuit, and after, Gemini. Imagine twin boys so unalike, so avid for each other. Together they hold a harp, one deathless, one the mortal brother. The next poem I'll read has a German title, the title of a series of waltzes by Brahms called in English Love Song Waltzes. There is a ballet uh, with this title choreographed by George Balanchine, which I have never seen. The poem is in four sections. I'll pause between them. Liebeslieder Walzer. She leans far back as if she meant to dance only with him, as if they were testing how far she could bend and not fall, past the small tables, a quartet singing, a line of candles. Now in a circle, embracing couples turn. Even the host and his wife dance as if the house were not theirs. And the song they ask for tells of happiness, despair, how they alternate in a lover's heart. People in pairs, people in fine clothes. With their singing, they will shut me out. Someone grips my waist. We pass the yellow candles. Chairs with their oval backs turn toward the garden. Outside, the wind racing and the stars blown out of reach. I ask what it means, this dance in the dark, and he smiles nothing but what you see. Surrender and possession make one shape, long limbs and no faces. Did I ever dance without thinking the turns are to pursue, to be desired, and the lure, happiness? You came here with people you have forgotten, like the songs, they have nothing to do with dances, all unimportant. Concentrate on the young men in black, the woman with bared shoulders, what you feared, what you envy them is intensity. poem is called Thomas and the Apostles. For the same reason he was a carpenter, he stood there, the others saying it was true. Oh, but he must not count on this. If the Lord lives, let him come to me, even me, Thomas, where in each place there was a nail, I'd press my hand, print where the nail slammed in. Will they be broken? Those who are not supple, last to believe, although they love no less.
the daughters of Edward Boyd, actor John Singer Sargent. Paris, 1882. The spaces between people are immense. Two outsized Chinese vases in the hall mark off the entrance to the drawing room. Dressed like her doll in white, Julia sits in the hallway on a pale green rug. An older child, arms behind her back, stands at the far left. Her hair is red gold and her dress deep red, whispers behind the red screen in the corner. The oldest girls have stepped back toward the darkness. White pinafores, black stockings, like two Irish maids, they keep close to the edges of the drawing room. Jane stares out at the invisible easel. The one who doesn't care is Floor, pardon me, slouching in profile on a Chinese vase. She is thinking of the great spaces, even between sisters. Paris, 1882. Three of you are looking straight ahead as if nothing will ever happen outside this room. There are two place names in this poem, both Russian ports on the Black Sea. Steamer to Feodosia. In Chekhov's story, two lovers sit in the public gardens watching the steamer to Feodosia. You are like them both, like the man and like the woman, sitting on a bench at Yalta. Almost evening, and they do not speak. The man is married to another woman, the woman to another man, and the end, the ending of their story is so far off this evening. The cypress ripples, the lilac water blackens, and you are still sitting in Chekhov's story because it is your story and you cannot know the ending. The Persian. Trees, fountains, flowers, and at the end, after all that blue, he weaves in one row the wrong color, as though in that perfect garden he could just run out of blue. Sly, like my mother, a black thread tied to her carriage insists there's nothing beautiful inside, nothing so perfect the eye might want it. Marked by this, marked by this, Always her fear reminds me of some flaw. Bare to the waist, afraid to take a lover, I look, but at the mirror find nothing disfiguring. What a long thread pulls from child to mother. I'm going to read a sequence of five poems. I'll pause between them. The opening of the first poem is a recounting of something seen by two people. View downward. The main street in this village is a river. It divides the town, one half's on fire, and on the burning side, the houses are all pink. Pink bridges are collapsing. It's impossible to tell who might be left behind. 
and there is something she wanted to tell him, but she can't remember. After we talk about the ending, what she was trying to tell him, you say it's that she loves him. She has forgotten to tell him she loves him. Why do men always think that? She might be asking for help. I can't remember, but it's not that. Not I love you. It's something heartbreaking. You are asleep. Behind you is the house, white, empty, and you stand in a field. Why don't you move? Everywhere there are black and white roses blowing. If you wanted, you could have them all. What happens in your dream, the dream of marriage? You don't remember, so it must be mine. And yours, yours is the other dream, a field of ice and then the one flower, scarlet. I think I know nothing about you. Always I see myself the one who wounds, and people would be angry. They would think, the woman is unfeeling. One day she decides not to be touched. Then he is far away, a dot, and the woman I became can only unravel her cruelty. She is ashamed not to love him. There is a Russian trick. A woman looks into a bowl of water and tells your future, but could she see the past? I want to ask, what happened to us alone in that unreal house with children who grow passionate? Driving back from the beach this September, we passed an inn, closed for the season. At night I see that place, a great square house, all white, and outside on the long deserted terrace, four perfect white umbrellas. The table is a circle of marble, and above us a wide umbrella spreads its green stripes, illusions of protection. Late afternoon and still, not everything is promised. I wish that it were wartime, both of us in danger. I am the imagined woman, the hero is waiting, and she comes to him, urgent, headlong. But danger now comes from the harsh interior. You should be more afraid of the long, calm, unimaginable season toward which this current takes us. I'm going to read a poem I wrote in 1982 after the death of the Canadian pianist Glenn Gould. It has some references to his eccentric behavior when he performed in public. The Idea of North, Glenn Gould, 1932-1982. Someone is coughing, so you hum a little. Low as a child's chair, the piano stool makes you even more ridiculous. 
A virtuoso of the concert stage turns to his audience. You tried. You cannot present yourself. When you look down, your hands are over water. They must never tire, as the sole rower must not tire, must not stare at the sun. Each turn seen now from a boy's height, cliffs so close and steep, you catch your breath, then accelerate. You call it north, the glittering, reclusive silence, this music suddenly continuous. song. Why long ago the Greeks wore blue for deep mourning? I have no way of knowing. Was it to blind themselves with surface iridescence? Or did they long for depth, the deep bend from the waist, the plunge, and underneath a slow uncoiling? Whatever they wanted, was not ordinary. Each one, each one wore something darker, more brilliant. Why they should choose this for mourning, I have no idea, but I know the blue. And just as much I wanted that strong, isolating blue, this dress and nothing else, but not for grief, for love. Thank you. I'm sorry I was um, standing in the back of the room as I thought uh, I was going to be uh, fourth, but I'm sort of encouraged by that because I guess the writers, poets, and everybody are always the ones who never know quite exactly what time they're going to go on, and all the people who run business can uh, know always exactly what time everything works. It doesn't really matter first, third, fourth, as we're all really interested in the same idea. I don't think of myself as an established writer. 
I think of myself more as someone who um, was interested in what we did in, in the Watts Writers Workshop, trying to find new writers, trying to find people uh, finding who had a voice but simply didn't know where to uh, put the voice. We've been doing that for about 19 uh, years, and uh, here in the city, in the Frederick uh, Douglass Creative Arts Center for about the last uh, 13. In the course of that, we've looked for writers coming up, writers who have something to say, and we're proud of, uh, proud, excited by what we find. Tonight, I'd like to introduce someone who worked in the center. His name is uh, Frederick B. Douglas. In the center, we know him as, uh, as Henri Salam, a uh, uh, Arabic word that means speaking uh, peace, through uh, truth. We hope that all of these uh, noble statements on all sides, all through the Middle East, will one day be resolved. I didn't know that Hami, I didn't know that Hami Salam was a writer. I've got to tell you the truth. We talked day after day on the phone. He was doing the press work for the center. He came out of a great deal of background community work. He'd been ed educated Wayne and Yale. He worked in the Urban League. But it didn't surprise me when I read his stories because I, I realized then why he was at the center. He was at the center because he wanted to help other writers. He was very good at what he did in a community affairs way, trained in it. And at the same time, he had a secret passion. Secret passion was that, that Hami was a uh, writer. And uh, in the long conflict, which we all go through in our lives, between community work social work, God knows what kind of work, and the inner workings of the mind and the heart, I hope that uh, the, the inner Hami Salam, the inner Frederick Hudson will be the winner. And I'm very proud to be here with him uh, tonight and to introduce him, to read his st story. He's had stories published in a number of small magazines. I think this one will be published uh, in a magazine. Is it Sticks, uh, Army or? Oh, the River Sticks. I just call it Sticks because I, but it's, it's the River Sticks. And uh, in, the next, in the next voice you hear, 
will be that of Hami Salam, Frederick B. Hudson. And the story is called Two Brothers. And thank you very much. Incidentally, in terms of our center, if there's anybody interested in it, we'll be out in the out in the hall or the corridors and we'll be glad to tell you more, more about it, activities, dates, because what we're all about is to find writers like Hami. And thank you very much. This, this is a sort of little narrative poem which takes uh, the mickey, if you know the expression and will pardon it, um, out of such things. It's called Fiction, the House Party. Uh, this doesn't rhyme, but it, it builds up a sort of rhythm as it goes along. Ambrose is an old Etonian, and he is terribly in love with a girl called Fluffy, who has lesbian tendencies and is very attracted to a sophisticated debutante called Angela Fondling, who was once the mistress of old Lord Vintage. <laughs> Don and Vi come to stay at the castle, and neither of them know how looking glasses aren't mirrors, or what wines go best with fish, or even how to handle a butter knife or talk about horses. Don makes a joke about being unstable. Fluffy doesn't know where to look, and Ambrose chokes on his claret. His lordship is thinking, about a certain incident in 1930 when filthy Fines Pantleberry rode a bay gelding up the main staircase and into a bathroom. Angela is writing a book about the middle classes. She keeps giving Don and Vi gin and depth interviews and trying like a mad thing to understand Bradford. I have to explain that at length, so I won't explain. <laughs> Lady Vintage is pathetically faded, but she loves a young criminal in London, Reg Ratcock. They sometimes meet in the afternoon on Fridays and smoke a lot of pot in the tenement basement. Ambrose is thinking of taking holy orders. He usually thinks of Fluffy as a very young choir boy. Vi wants to go to the loo, but she's shy about asking. Lord Vintage has vanished into several daydreams. He remembers well how Frank Fondling once shot a beater. Don is getting very tired of gin. Vi wets her knickers. Fluffy says to Ambrose, but what is a chasuble? <laughs> and Angela keeps her tape recorder running. Well, that's another way of writing poems, of course. I, I think I've got time I hope just for one more. And this is, in fact, the only poem that I've ever written that um, was written to be read aloud. And it's, again, a country house poem. Uh, it, it's, it's supposed to be like an Agatha Christie uh, detective story, but it's written by an owl. And as it's written by an owl, I'm involved in the business of making owl noises because it has uh, owl-like rhymes at the end of every line, as you'll hear. The owl writes a detective story. It has all the sort of typical, prototypical characters that Agatha Christie's books have. A stately home where doves in dovecots coo, fields where calm cattle stand and gently moo, trim lawns where croquet is the thing to do, 
This is the ship, the house parties, the crew, Lord Feudal, hunter of the lion and canoe, whose walls display the heads of not a few. Her ladyship, once I'd a who liked his lordship very high-born too, surveys the world with a disdainful moo. That's the moo that's spelt M-O-U-E, and it's the sort of face that ladies in novels in the 20s and 30s made if you said something to them that displeased them. Their son, most active with a billiard cue, Lord Lazy, stays in bed till half past two, a Balkan count called Popolesoru, an ex-dictator waiting for a coup, and Femme, most English, modest, straight and true, a very pretty girl without a sou, Adrian Finkelstein, a clever Jew, Tempest Belair's a beauty such as you, would only find in books like this, she'd sue if I displayed her to the public view, and not to say men stick to her like glue. John Huntingdon, who's only here to woo, and femme. Sorry, a fact, except for her, the, the whole house knew, and femme. And last, the witty Cambridge Blues, the honorable Algie Playfair, who shines in detection. His clear view, hello, puts murderers into a frightful stew. But now the plot unfolds. What déjà vu? There, in the snow, the clear print of a shoe. Tempest is late for her next rendezvous. Lord Feudal's blood spreads wide, red, sticky goo on stiff white shirt front. Lazy's billet doux has missed Anne Fenn, and Popolescoru has left without a whisper of adieu or saying goodbye. Typical mauvais coup. Adrian Finkelstein, give him his due, behaves quite well. Excitement is taboo in this emotionless landowner's zoo. Alger, with calm that one could misconstrue, handling with nonchalance bits of Bertou, knows who the murderer is. He has a clue. But who? But who, 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 who? Thank you.
And if I said that he is the author of three books of poetry, The Onion Memory of 1978, Martin Penn's Postcard Home, that he's published in the next year, and Free Translation, a short book that appeared in 1981, that would slight the great calm with which they were greeted and the influence those books have had on the new generation of British poets, among whom Rain has emerged as something of a leader, or at least a standard. Let me say a word about this new generation in Britain. It's uh, a great deal of poetry coming over from England since the war has seemed to American ears, I think, not just to this pair of minds, uh, dry and sometimes muffled. If that's the case, then these new poets do indeed sound as an altogether brighter, more astringent and exuberant note. The editors of the recent Penguin Book of Contemporary British Poetry have made even grander claims for it. They see it as one of the decisive shifts of sensibility in literary history. Without going so far, we can recognize a new imaginative energy and sparkle, a sharply angled Craig Rain is among the most vigorous and witty and humane of these new poets. Nothing truly appears, uh, the poet Alfred Korn wrote, until we try to see it as something else. That, of course, is a home truth for poetry. A few contemporary poets have taken it to the heart and mind of their poems, as Craig Rain has. For him, Images provide, he says, a kind of sustenance, alms for every beggared sense, each an avatar of generosity. And indeed, he is very generous poet, generous in his attention to the world's objects and feelings and relationships, for he knows that a poet's responsibility consists of his ability to respond to those feelings. Generous, too, in his reliance on a repertory of poetic No, no, I'll, re I'll read here. Thanks very much. Um, I'm not sure I can read, actually. My face is aching so much after Gavin. Um, 
try that again. Um, I'll start with a poem um, which was commissioned. Um, it was a poem about Shakespeare which was commissioned. Um, it was a very easy commission. You were given 68 lines um, and you could write about Shakespeare or you could write about a Shakespeare character or a Shakespeare play or failing all else, you could write any old poem and just have an epigraph from Shakespeare. Um, I thought one ought to do this um, as seriously as possible and, and really write a, a, a genuine poem rather than just um, use, use up one of one's old ones. And I tried and actually failed abysmally um, for quite a long time. And until I remembered seeing my son, who was then about two and a half. All yours. Two brothers. Yes, sir. Raymond Carmels is a stubborn man. That he is. Wouldn't listen to us when he told him his brother Samson might have a point running around with his flyers for young people. The flyers aroused some folks' dander, though, talking about lust and stuff. Even if the papers did expressly forbid engaging in sins of the body to young folks. I first met the Raymond Samuelson Combs of Cabos at the cafeteria one morning before work, next to the First City Bank building last October, two days before Halloween. He was engrossed in a green, yellow, and red African robe, and in conversation with an overweight, pumpkin-faced gentleman with a New York Times folded under his left elbow. I know you're busy, sir, but please listen just a minute. I've been traveling around the country, and I don't want but a minute of your time. Reverend Cobble's hands were folded, as in prayer, moving up and down in front of his multicolored robe as he talked past the coffee cup in front of him. Across the table, the gentleman's red face was politely unemotional, but you could tell he wanted to get the hell out of sight of the right reverend. I kind of slipped in the seat next to the fat-faced gentleman and slipped a, and kind of sipped a cup of tea with one sugar and picked up one of the flyers. It read, Better Living for Young People. Number one is prayer time in the city. Two, let's get prayer back in the schools. Three, obey your parents better this year than last year. Four, go to school each Sunday and listen to your preacher or teacher if possible. Five, work your way through college if possible. Six, be respectable until you're 23 years old. <laughs> Ask any questions here that you may have. Do unto others as you would desire them to do unto you until God calls you home. May God bless and keep you always. Reverend Sampson, Thomas Sampson Cobbles, call 732-7890. Okay, let's get off to a good start. Donation to help me travel of 25 cents, a dollar 26 cents, or 26 dollars. Thank you in advance. Goal to cover 50 states in the next five years to get the white to quit hating the black, the black to quit hating the white, and the babies to quit having so many babies. The last words on the Xerox sheets, the ones starting with the cover 50 states, they were written smaller with a ballpoint pen, as if they were written in as an afterthought to the other words above written in bold printing above a photograph of Reverend Samson Cobbles, with his name printed above it. Just as I finished reading the last lines of the flyer, I heard Reverend Cobbles telling his captive listener, 
It's up to you, sirs, as to how much you want to give me. 26 cents, a dollar 26 cents, or 26 dollars to help me travel the country to spread God's word. All I ask is a handshake. If you don't want to give me any money right now, the Holy Ghost is going to take care of me and you both. At this point, I decided to introduce myself to him, to quiet him down. I extended myself to him, right hand first, body positioned against the edge of the table to directly oppose his tense shoulder muscles, showing at the neck of his African gown. The round-faced white man took the occasion of my intruding hand to grab his folded New York Times and leave, casting disbelieving eyes over his black mohair shoulder as he merged with the other office workers at the door. Reverend Cobbles grabbed my outstretched hand and shook it vigorously. I could feel his heavy metal rings in my palm. I can tell you a man with some sense. Kind of looked like my nephew, William Cobbles. You know him? He's a young lawyer, got his office at the bank building. His daddy, my brother Raymond, you know him, don't you? I nodded my head. My eyes were fixed on the wisp of gray hair on his chin. Against the smooth, chocolate wrinkles in his cheeks, the scraps of beard made him appear elfin, a visitor from a wood carving in the art museum gift shop. Raymond got that sales firm over in the Shercross building, you know. He had his little fling at politics, but found the city don't give you no, the system don't give you no backing. They throw you in these situations, but don't stand behind you. Or maybe they do stand behind you to laugh at you when you mess up. Raymond ain't concerned with heaven like you and me. He ain't ever gonna be hungry though. Him and his wife living real good over in that suburb. What they call it, Palm Town? Listening to the Reverend, I felt my back go rigid, as it did six years ago when I walked down the street in Philadelphia after a union meeting, and a young girl looked at me, stood in the middle of the sidewalk, waved her hand up and down like a gate at a parking lot, as if to let me enter. I did not let her enter. My mind was on finding the next back to leapfrog over, to membership in the Transit Workers Union. A broad back, a slender spine, it didn't matter. After the meeting, a fellow who drove on the Elmhurst line, too, had come up to me in the parking lot, spilling his concern over a fellow who'd been off work for two weeks, calling in sick at first, then for the last four working days, and not even bothered to call in. Seems he was strung out over some chair and was staying home drinking wine. I felt like if he didn't want to work, then he didn't need to work. Besides, if he was staying home, he didn't vote for me in the last local election anyway, so what good was he to me? I didn't see much point in going over to the cat's house and talking him into seeing a doctor and getting a medical paper. Give the job to somebody else. All this came back to me as Reverend Cobbles kept talking on and on about heaven and angels and love. I glanced up at the clock over the serving counter and saw it was getting on to be 9 o'clock. So I told the Reverend I had to go. I took the leaflet with me. As I walked home that night over the ten-foot bridge which crossed the sucking-in clump of shrubbery and bushes where my nephews played hide-and-seek before their parents moved into Baltimore, my eyes captured a helicopter over the supermarket half a block before I could reach my house. Funny, a few years ago if someone had told me that helicopters would be used for crime prevention, I would have laughed in their face. Now I was almost glad to see them shining their 45-degree angle lights along the backyards. Right before I got to my front door, I was passed. That's right, passed, because I heard it coming behind me by the wheelchair with Miss Amy Rogers in it. She lived around the corner in the house with a ramp that the state had installed to make her more mobile. I spoke to her like I always do, 
but didn't ever expect much of an answer and didn't get one. Inside, I pulled off my green tie and gray suit coat, spread them on the coffee table, and relaxed the rest of my clothes and me in the big leather armchair with the footrest that came from Brazil. After I closed my eyes and watched the little specks and swirls of colored lights that I see, I don't know about other folks in their closed eyes fireworks. The thought of Beatrice crossed my mind. We had had a little thing for four months now. The tentative touchings and withdrawals for fear's sake, the toast in supermarket bought wine goblets, the visits that extended into long night-long night stays, and the careful glances at each other at parties to ensure that our better energies were still reserved for each other. The trip to Toronto a month ago had solidified whatever it was that we had. That clean Canadian city had mixed memories for Beatrice since she had gone there five years ago when she was pregnant, pregnant and alone, telling her, her parents she wanted to stay for a year at York University. The child had been placed for adoption through the Catholic Church, and Beatrice had been placed for redemption through endless visits to Mass and the many magnificent cathedrals casting shadows on the guilt of a middle-class girl clutching an Indian book bag filled with the seven-story mountain and the myth of Sisyphus. I asked her once what she thought about in the six months after the child was born and she had time to kill. She never answered. Her fingers moved in her lap, fingering some absent rosary beads. Beatrice and I had been together last two nights ago. We'd gone to her cousin Mark's new co-op apartment. He had some musician friends over. The incense and Pharaoh Sanders' tender tenor sax on plastic, weaving among the new bamboo woven Venetian blinds, I saw someone raise as we parked across the four-lane street. After we crossed the smoky threshold of Mark's place, the smell of Colombian red told me why they were a trifle edgy about who was arriving. Mark was a civil engineer with the county and still had his pens and compass in a vinyl pouch sticking out of the pocket of a white-on-white -white shirt with the sleeves rolled up below the elbow. He was a medium-sized cat, about 5'10", 170 pounds. His complexion was light tan, the color of the matching suitcase he carried on the trip to Jamaica last year. Shortly after we got back, he introduced me to Beatrice at his co-worker Sam Labor's Day barbecue. About an hour after we arrived, the jazz on the record player was replaced with lyrical love ballads by the top ten chart makers. Beatrice fitted nicely with my right elbow, moving in sequence to my steps. As we danced, I enjoyed the surrounding walls. I almost wanted to turn myself into one of the wall hangings or objects to art in Mark's place. There was one piece that snared me in particular, a gold-plated Buddha with incense holders in the lap of the sitting god. Between looking at the statue and grabbing a stick of Colombian red from a tall lady with an orange shift clinging to her knees, I had my hands full keeping Beatrice moving in time. Mark noticed we were having trouble keeping our boat afloat, and he yelled, Hey, you well-up birds, you better sit down and rest up unless you just want to fall on top of each other. His slightly crooked teeth spoke from the corner where the ashtray suspended from a wire in the ceiling was swaying gently. Beatrice and I slept into the recesses of the big Indian pillows on the floor. My lady and I didn't talk much during the party, just popped peanuts in each other's mouths and spun an empty Chablis bottle around on the floor to see which one of us it would point to, that person being the one to initiate the kiss. But all that was past. I didn't know if I wanted to call Beatrice tonight or not. The need to have someone respond to me had almost been completely satisfied as I walked home, 
and saw a single sedan coming down the hill with no lights. After the taillights came on in response to my yell, I looked back twice to admire the disappearing red spots, which owed me for, the dis for, the vis for their visibility. The next morning, I felt the vibrations from the record I let play all night, felt them in my seat on the bus, felt them in the counter of the same coffee shop where I met Reverend Cobbles. I didn't remember the name of the record, though. Guess it wasn't important, just that it was turning round and round. The music box on my desk, half a block down, turned too. The soft, bronze horses under an umbrella and flags. Beatrice gave it to me one day when the sand got in my ear at the beach. Brought it to me on the terrace while I was reading some minutes from the last local 213 meeting. I told her when it would be good, shaking my head and the sand in it. But there are four seasons, and Reverend Cobble sees all of them. The counterman in the cafeteria was the first to take me to winter. He told me that the man I was talking to yesterday had been picked up by the police later that day for begging and vacancy. His gray eyes had red stringy hair above them. He pushed the gray framed glasses closer to his eyes as he told me of the reverend's arrest. The Lord's good soldier has lost his sword. Let me blow the ram's horn and tumble the walls. Have I been living a lie? Why was I not taken? I have no obligations. The union is a business, they told me. They told me after the meeting two months ago, when the pension funds were invested in the ten mines of Bolivia, the rate of return is all that matters. Why do these voices come to me at night when I adjust the headphones in my stereo? The seconds before the music begin, the first voice comes, a slow baritone, waiting with the sound of coins and paper envelopes dropping in the church collection plates. Cobbles is not, was not my problem. Beatrice had been properly equipped by Johnny Collins with bad breath, she said. There would be no fruit from this unit. I knew that and Beatrice suspected it. There were too many things to do and her presence, while comforting, was leaving an aftertaste in the roof of my mouth, a taste I could not swallow. After the counterman told me how the police officer had escorted the Reverend Cobbles outside after someone had complained about his sermons and collections, I stared through the glass of the serving counter at a piece of lemon meringue pie, wanting the taste in my mouth to be that of the pie. It was not. I sat down at the nearest table, tapping the base of the table with the toe of my new black floor shine loafers. I decided to call Beatrice at the advertising agency where she did sketches of lingerie for department store sales. Hey love, why are you calling me so early? Just cause we start work at eight up here don't mean you got to rub it in. I just wanted to make arrangements to meet you for lunch at Stouffer's. Something happened. I want to talk to you about it. Okay, got to go now. The kiss was barely audible in the receipt. The office bustle was a play I watched, sliding paper clips off sheaves of financial ledgers. I bent the clips together, tying six straightened ones around the middle with a clip turned into a circle. The bundle of clips lay in my ashtray as I scanned my files for nothing and everything. Union business, it was a farce. We were part of the service sector. Good insurance benefits, pension plan, eyeglass care, bail fund. Maybe that was the key, the bail fund. Maybe we should taste the bars for breakfast, as the founders did. Things were too easy now. Solidarity was a joke. 
Real organizing was unknown except to the members now exercising in our retirement program. But Cobbles was an organizer. But Cobbles was an organizer. I felt the leaflet in my pocket, stuffed there as an afterthought as I placed my car keys in, in my pocket that morning. My eyes focused on the last line, for the babies to quit having so many babies. Perhaps Beatrice would appreciate that line. One of her girlfriends was having a child in a couple of months, a planned pregnancy, an unwed mother with a degree in medical technology. She said she wanted to have a child before she got too old, and no one wanted to marry her who she wanted. She had assured Beatrice that their father had been selected with care. His physical, mental, and emotional makeup had been carefully studied. Beatrice said perhaps we should have gotten her a deluxe doll with different sets of clothing for events, sailing, horseback riding, disco dancing, etc. The doll could always be traded in. Adoption would be more time-consuming if the mother got tired of her planned child. Lunch was tuna with melted cheddar cheese and tomato on rye for me. Beatrice had a chef's salad. Both of, us, both of us watched the waiter pour Michelob in two frosted mugs and smiled politely after we thanked his waist-high red vest for his gracious service. I already had slid the reverence flyer under Beatrice's napkin before we began our meal. I watched her eyes scan, then begin again at the top of the paper. So what's this all about? That man whose picture is at the top of the paper got picked up by the police this morning for begging. All he wanted was money to travel around the country to spread his message. I think we should do something. You know Raymond Cobbles, who used to be down at the city hall, commissioner of something? Yeah, so what's he got to do with this? That's his brother. The show got different ways of going about things. We got to call him. Let him know his brother's in jail. You don't always get to make a phone call in jail. The man's got a good heart. I smoothed my mustache as I talked, feeling for tuna fish and rye bread. Beatrice looked at me, her fork poised in midair. The red ribbon at the left side of her hair barely fluttered in the slight draft from the street through the open door. After a moment, she spoke into her bowl of lettuce and trimmings. You really feel for the old man, don't you? I thought you, and all this time, I thought you just cared about me and a new Porsche. But some old Bible fanatic has got under your skin. That's all right, baby. I know you care about me a little. I bet if I got thrown in jail, you'd be down in a couple of days. Let's help the old fellow. Where's his brother now? He's down at the Sharecross building. Some kind of marketing firm. Look, baby, it would be better if you called. Guys always respond better for lady calls. If I called, it would just seem as if I was trying to get into the man's business. Just tell him a friend of yours heard his brother was in the joint. I mean jail. And you thought he should know. Okay, I'll ask in the office what the name of the firm is. Somebody will know. These folks have been around a long time. They know everybody in town. The rest of the meal was silent and hurried. A new dimension had expanded into our presence, and the air around us crackled with static electricity. The sparks vanished and were replaced with something new, forbidden before now. A challenge to be met together, not a bridge to be crossed, each of us beginning at opposite ends. A river runs through us. Beatrice called me about two o'clock that day. She said Raymond Cobbles wanted to talk to us after work at his office. I copied down the address in my address book on the inside cover. I told Beatrice I would meet her in the lobby of the man's office at 5.30. The directory in the lobby had the white capital letters set in a dusky black felt background. Universal Marketing, Suite 203. The elevator operator was a Mexican girl with a withered left arm. She looked, over, looked us over quickly. 
The elevator came to our floor in a finger snap. Universal marketing advertised a large reception area decorated with prints of wilderness scenes, a moose on a slope behind snow-capped mountains, wolves running in a snow-covered forest. I can't recall the details of the rest of the pictures. The small bone, small-faced receptionist invited us to sit down on, on the Nagalda Hyde couch. I thought of an article I had read some time ago which described Will Chamberlain's home, which included a couch made of wolves' noses. Glancing at the picture above the desk of the wolves and feeling the smooth couch under me, I decided I liked my wolves in the woods. After the large hand on the clock above the receptionist's desk electronically moved past five little dots, the receptionist showed me holding Beecher's hand into the inner office. Gray carpet, wide windows with blue curtains pulled apart, showing the sporadic rebuilding, orange girders through the downtown squares of gray and brown stones. Raymond Cobbles, about six foot even, draped in blue pinstripes, leaned up against a blonde glass top desk. His eyes framed in black aviator glasses had a curious cast in them, as if the answers to the questions we had seen as if the answers to the questions we had were to be seen in his pupils. His eyes scanned Beatrice's hips, breast, lips covered, colored a shade that matched the fine red lines crisscrossing her light yellow pantsuit. I wish you could have seen her two months ago at the former dinner the social club gave. Black satin designer outfit with a matching scarf and cape, and the lady was with me. Cobbles then turned his attention towards me. Tell me something, young man. Would you rather lose your hearing, eyesight, or ability to talk? I didn't know what he was getting at and wasn't particularly in the mood to play too many questions. I just shook my head and in a loud voice said, I really don't know, sir. I try not to think about misfortunes befalling me or anyone else for that matter. Cobbles walked towards us and placed an arm around my shoulder, then the other around Beatrice's. He looked towards the open window. Well, I'll tell you, young man. I try not to think much of misfortune myself, but when it happens, I can't ignore it. I appreciate you folks taking such an interest in my brother. Remember how I asked you when you came in if you'd rather lose your hearing, your sight, or speech? Well, Samson is all those things to me, my senses. He feels for me, says the things I must remain remote, mute about to live the way I want to live. Watch. He strode towards a cylindrical tank in the corner of the room, pulling some yellow balloons out of his pants pockets. After slipping the pointed nozzle inside the balloon, he turned the valve on top of the gas cylinder. When the balloon was full, he tied a piece of string around the opening and released the yellow spear, which now revealed black letters proclaiming Gibson's Supermarket. The balloon floated to the top of the office ceiling. It's helium. His lips had spread, showing two gold teeth in the front of his mouth. He gazed at the balloon for half a minute, casting glances at Beatrice and myself watching him. Turning towards us, he rubbed the side of his cheek with his index finger. I love my brother. I want you to know that. But I just don't know what to do to help him right now. We went into the industrial cleaning business together after World War II. About the only way colored folks could get their foot in the door downtown then. We just hired folks to clean buildings at first on service contracts. But Samson had a degree in chemistry from North Carolina A&T. He got it by mopping floors. And he wanted to go put his knowledge to good use. 
So he started fooling around with different chemicals to make a multi-purpose cleaner for commercial jobs. Something that would clean floors, carpets, windows even. You would just add different parts of water to the cleaner depending on what you wanted to clean. He was getting pretty close too. But one night, the equipment blew up with a batch of chemicals in it. Young boy from North Carolina was working with Samson. Got pretty badly burned. Burned so bad, they told me he works in the auto shop in a room by himself now, rebuilding. So, so not too many transmission folks won't have to see him. After then, Samson got just kind of lost interest in everything to do with business and started reading the Bible. Left for down south about three months after the accident. Been roaming around the country ever since. Raymond Cobble's face had lost the tightness it had when we first came into the office. The worry lines had relaxed into smooth planes, and helium seemed to expand his bronze skin. I resolved to know everything I could. Sir, why is Raymond so obsessed with sex in the community? The leaflet he gave me stresses abstinence for young women until the age of 23. In this day and age, that's kind of unrealistic to me. Raymond opened his eye, his mouth, closed it, then opened it again. Well, that relates to the tragedy that happened with the explosion. See, Samson was a hell of a ladies' man back then himself. And the night the stuff blew up, he was laying over the secretary we had in the office. Could have been more than 21 at the time. Cute chick. Works at the state office building. Still looks good. He looked at Beatrice again, the way he'd looked at her when we, when we first entered his office. I wanted him to stop looking at her. He's seen enough. Well, sir, is there anything you, you could think of that can be done to help Samson now? My voice was as even as I can make it. You mean pay the fine, don't you? I was silent. Beatrice looks toward the balloon. Well, I'll tell you something. I'm pretty embarrassed to have a brother back. Jack Clem's work as a student at Columbia. He has the strong voice of the Irish storyteller, unselfconscious. His characters live in the working world. His finely structured and energetic narrative creates a world with its own integrity, rich in language and humor. Like four million <clears throat> other New Yorkers, I have a cold today. But I'll do what I can here. I want to read from my novel, uh, Mad Dogs and Kings. I've uh, chosen a subject which concerns most of us at one time or another. That is birth control. Uh, the narrator is Sean Kelly in his mid-twenties. Um, but recalling his first encounter with birth control <clears throat> at the age of 15, in anticipation of the arrival of a young lady named Colleen, who he hasn't seen in a year. And the setting is the Rhode Island seashore. By the third week in June, with school suddenly out, I realized I had less than a month 
to plan for Colleen's eventful return. Highest on my list of research projects, contraception. I knew nothing about the vast array of contraptions and creams, foams and pills, multicolored condoms, lubricated or unlubricated, ribbed or smooth, nipple-ended or plain. Our drugstore had an entire counter of loving couples entwined on packages, cardboard displays with diagrams of penises sliced painfully into cross-section and vaginas with arrows inserted to show the way. Our druggist was a cantankerous old sod beyond retirement who scowled at any minor lingering by his pleasure dome. Inquiries, let alone purchases, were impossible. I assumed the first time with Colleen would have to be a seduction of sorts. I didn't doubt for a moment there might be some surprises, but I knew fully well we were not going to discuss our method of birth control like two well-meaning newlyweds, then run out to have her fitted for a diaphragm. The protection would have to be for me. Condoms were the obvious choice. I knew painfully little about them. They were playthings for teenage boys, giant inflatable balloons. I had never lowered myself to indulge in them as toys. When I confronted the limitless variety and brands on the market, I was plagued with indecision. I wanted only what would best suit our spontaneous, all-consuming passion. I didn't know if that meant lubricated or nipple end. I wasn't certain if there were sizes, and if so, whether they were established by length or circumference. Those I had seen mishandled by my juvenile contemporaries looked to be, how shall I say, well, large. I assumed I was a medium. It would be snug, of course, but safer that way. It was not until we returned to the Rhode Island shore that I had the opportunity to explore the matter with impunity. The drugstore near the beach also served as a luncheonette and beach supply outlet. The druggist there was in his 30s with slick black hair, a waxed mustache, and a sly smile for all the young and nubile patrons inspecting lotions on their skins. I had ample time to ponder every protection under glass and steamily envision its use. I could glory in the epic conquest their brand names evoked. Sparta, Troy, Arabia, <laughs> Babylon. I was relieved to learn one size served all. I found myself attracted to the package of an unfocused woman with her head thrown back and as a bald-pated man ravaged her neck but they sold only by the dozen and were prohibitively expensive. I considered buying one three-pack of each major type and making my final decision in the privacy of my own locked bathroom. As the druggist approached me with a glint in his eye, an elderly woman stepped up to the counter with a prescription in her unsteady grasp. She studied me for a moment, then glanced down at the glass yet fogged by my breath. Her whisker jaw dropped, revealing toothless gums. Rimless spectacles seemed about to fall off. Hacking suddenly, I asked the druggist to direct me to the cough medicine. He pointed bewilderedly in the direction of the last aisle. Still choking, I nodded thanks and took my leave. With only days left until Colleen's return, I was distraught. I could not return to the drugstore. 
I imagined the old woman crouched behind the steroids, waiting to assault me with her cane. I would always be too timid to purchase a condom, even from slick, mustachioed lechers. I spent long days walking lone stretches of beach to contemplate my sorrow. I imagined Colleen whispering provocative endearments, then telling me, yes, she was ready, yes, please hurry. I would not be prepared. Our love would collapse, our ardor turn cold. She would look disappointed, perhaps even chide me. I would be fixed forever like a domestic cat. Miserable weather visited New England that weekend. When it was not raining, the humidity made bones creak and furniture stink with must. Alone and bored, I divided my time between the arcades and bars. I had little money. My parents begrudged me a beggar's pittance. But I was good at getting the salty dogs to buy me beers. Toothless, tobacco-sucking, retired merchant marines I loved. The old ones who didn't trust solid ground under their feet, who drank themselves blind until it gave under them like the sea. The old ones who farted and laughed and spat where they pleased. Hoary, drooling, retired sailors whose mother was the sea, who cried like babies every night because she no longer rocked them to sleep. I quaffed bountiful suds as one rose from his chair to toast the fair maid who inspired a poem listened as he delivered 100 lines of obscene verse amid boisterous laughs and cheers. Applause and four pitchers of ale followed his dramatic recitation. Squinting and smiling, the seaman wiped the spittle from his stubbled chin, then grabbed a pitcher and tossed back his head. Golden ale rushed, gushed across the ravines in his face, poured down his gullet, and streamed over his shirt. When the pitcher was empty, he slammed it on the bar and croaked with a triumphant belch. More cheers for a true sailor. When the clouds finally parted, I resumed my doleful wandering. I might have walked for hours, never staring more than 10 yards of shoreline ahead, the sun beating my back and driving me on, climbing over perilous stretches of boulders that had tumbled from cliffs into the sea, wading through marshes with tall reeds and abundant chattering life. I was about to turn back or follow the last footpath I had seen to a road and hitch a ride home when I lifted my head to survey the last distance before me. A small curved beach backed by a short bluff appeared as out of nowhere. A volleyball game was in progress at the midpoint of the beach. People were scattered in clusters beyond the high tide line. I had no desire to go any further. I would not have given the scene a second glance, but then something struck me and I held my place. The beach was a considerable distance away. I had to refocus my eyes to discern what had caught my attention to distinguish this beach from the hundreds of others it seemed I'd already passed. The volleyball game was coeducational. I could tell by the lengths of hair flinging into the air. Most players were generously oiled or sweating profusely in the heat of the match. Their bodies en masse reflected enough light to make me squint. Next, I considered those closer in the foreground. They were lying very still, adepts of sun worship. 
Blurred heat rose up from the sand, refracting my stare. I looked down to the water. A young mother with long blonde hair held the hands of her children, little naked Wunderkinder, jumping excitedly as each wave reached their knees. And then it struck me. She was naked too. I took several steps closer. The whole beach was nude. What had looked like bathing suits on some were simply tan lines from bathing suits that had been shed. Many were seasonal goers, their bodies bronzed flawlessly from head to toe. I ventured closer, stopping at a wood sign with white lettering planted at the border of the beach. It read, Moonstone Beach, swimwear optional. My arms hung over the sign as though it were driftwood and I shipwrecked at sea. Human beings of both sexes in all ages, colors, and sizes were spread out before me, publicly exposed and unashamed. I wondered suddenly if I'd wandered into another country. Certainly not in America, never in New England. But here stood Moonstone Beach with its unoptioned swimwear. The volleyball game was a marvel to watch. Breasts and penises leapt skyward with each vault. Buttocks flagellated like cinnamon custard with every return to earth. I could not believe monstrous vices were not unleashed, that the match did not deteriorate into a tribal orgy before my eyes. People were smiling and laughing. Men and women spoke calmly to each other. Genitals exhibited no sign of excitement, though a few might have hinted. I would have stood gawking the rest of the day had not several stern glances informed me I was an intruder, clothed a voyeur. I did not dare onto the beach, nor ventured to remove my now impossibly tight-fitting cut-off jeans. I believe my glands would froth uncontrollably over such stimuli at closer range. I ignored the glares until I thought I'd heard a heckler call out to me. Not wishing to make a scene, I departed for the nearest footbath leading to the road, intent on determining where this little hamlet stood in the context of a map. It was closer than I imagined. The first road marker gave five miles to the beach by my parents' home. I was very tempted to return the next day. But the pressing matter of Colleen's imminent return eclipsed that notion, and the dullness in my heart returned. A gas station stood in the middle of the wedge where the inland road diverged from the coastal road. I decided to make a short call to the men's room before the final stretch. Two attendants handled the lines of cars at the pumps. One managed to tell me over a dog's furious bark that the men's room was not locked at the side of the station. I proceeded circuitously avoiding the rainbow pools of oil with my bare feet and the German shepherd consumed by the desire to kill me or choke himself to death on the end of his chain. The men's room looked like most unlocked men's rooms. I was happy only to have to pee. I considered a more natural setting for that simple act when I saw the pool of water and debris regurgitated by a toilet marked out of order. The nearest urinal, however, was accessible by careful ballet across several dry patches of floor. I decided not to fret. The bathroom mirror had been ripped violently from the wall. Several shards of reflective glass peeked out from under soaked paper towels on the floor. 
A few admirable line drawings of oversized, misplaced genitalia confronted the viewer in near three dimension on the wall. I scrupulously avoided reading the graffiti. I loathe bathroom graffiti as I loathe Muzak and all other effronteries exploiting a captive audience. My eyes wandered to the wall, flanking the sink, where a small vending machine was perilously attached. It boasted three selections for a slim quarter. The first was a pack of miniature pornographic playing cards depicting a naked woman attempting to mount the ace of spades. The second displayed the great mystery box with a question mark and a comic book hawker peeking inside, his eyeballs bursting and tongue dripping wet. It was the third selection, however, which popped my own eyeballs from their sockets. A voluptuous Lady Godiva straddled a white horse advertising white stallion prophylactics. The condom so sheer and scientifically advanced, it will feel better than your own skin. <laughs> I could not believe my synchronous good fortune. What's more, white stallions had sensual to prolong your moment of love and enhance every climax, every time. I finished my business, <clears throat> then struggled to get a hand into my left pocket. It was empty. My right pocket was now completely torn. I slapped the back of my shorts with both hands, despairing that I'd left my wallet home. 25 cents separated me from bliss. Desperate, I forced my right hand into my back pocket. Two fingers retrieved no more than some disintegrated tissue. Groaning, I tried my left. My heart raced as one finger touched the edge of something hard. I forced my hand violently deeper. It was a coin. I managed to pinch it with two fingers and coax it upwards, sweat mounting along my brow. My fingers slipped several times. I considered dropping my shorts but feared extemporaneous intrusion. I inched the coin to the top of the seam, then pulled hard. The coin shot free of my shorts, ringing as it hit the tile floor and rolling into the brackish pool of water by the broken toilet. Cursing God and setting aside all sanitary consideration, I waited to retrieve the coin. It was frightfully close to the most awful debris, but I swooped down fast to reclaim it. The coin was blackened and crusty from countless immersions in the sea. I rubbed my thumb hard across its surface. Tears formed in my eyes as George Washington's profile appeared. Chortling like a child, I tiptoed back to the vending machine and quickly deposited the coin into the slot. It tumbled to the gaping bottom, rejected. I tried again. No success. Swearing, I re-examined George. Perhaps a thorough cleansing was necessary. I turned on the cold water at the sink. It sneezed some hot air, then released three tawny drops. I tried the hot water, a pipe gagged behind the wall, nothing more. I shouted a Sicilian curse at big oil. Not to be thwarted, I rubbed the quarter over the shredded bottoms of my jeans, removing the salt that had collected on the rim. Swallowing hard to gather my will, I pushed the coin rampantly into the slot. A metal tumbler fell into place. The machine waited obediently for my selection. 
I gripped the rusty lever under the stallion and pulled hard. A white plastic square fell to the bottom, possessing a single white condom without a nipple end. I sighed and wiped the sweat from my brow. I would see Colleen tomorrow after a long year had passed and I was finally prepared. Thank you. I first met Sharon Stark last summer at the Breadloaf Writers' Conference, where she was a scholar in fiction. At one of the marathon readings they hold there, she was permitted to read for five minutes. I've invited her here this evening because, as Andy Warhol says, everyone should be famous for at least 20 minutes. Because I empathize with her position as a relatively late bloomer, and because she's a very good writer, Sharon Stark. I'm going to be reading from uh, my novel called A Wrestling Season, believe it or not. And uh, thus far, I think I'm going to give the, each chapter a wrestling term. That's awfully cute of me, I think. But anyhow, this is the first chapter because it's the only chapter that's complete, and it's called Escape. In the dream, the wrestler is wearing a star-spangled singlet. There are, of course, two wrestlers, but the one that Dreamer seems to care about, quite without meaning to, is the one done up in stars, the man on top. Incurious, unhurried, the dream uncoils with the plotting, matter-of-fact fatalism of old home movie footage. This wrestler knows what he's about. He unpacks a craftsman sampler of fancy work before gathering the bottom man into a cradle that manages to be, at the same time, tenacious and tender, resolute and rueful, in a word, maternal. The man at risk cranks upward, his face lifting close to the wrestler's own, just inches below the dreamer's great, omniscient night eye. His mouth forms a thin smile, and then he whispers something. He smiles again, and his eyes shut tight. On the wrestler's cheek and on the dreamer's brow, the whispered words pulse like the frantic beating of dusty wings but the dreamer has not heard right. Come again, he says, searching the opponent's locked face, suddenly so like his own. He shakes the opponent, cursing his perversity. Please tell me, implores the wrestler dreamer, as the dream, gathering speed, turns jerky and tense and desperate. Trover Cleave escaped from this dream to remember his father was dead. He slipped back into predicament the cold clog of resurrected grief. Panic seized all his parts. He could be a bug struggling through tons of dumped substance. 
Then miraculously, a glimmer of sky, of escape. Trover Cleave had never gone to a viewing or a funeral in his life. As a lawyer, he understood the value of precedent. I don't go to funerals, he told himself triumphantly. And to his wife, asleep beside him, he said, it feels like snow. And Louise Cleave, who could manage wisdom only in emergencies, and then only when it became clear nobody would furnish it for her, opened her eyes. This time she did not snipe. Snow in the middle of November? Snow? Did not turn her sleep-stuck face to his, trying to mold a groggy stare into hard suspicion. Wisely said nothing. Trover watched his wife lift weightlessly out of bed. The fact that her flesh-toned nightgown was inside out rankled obliquely, the ghost of annoyance only. He was mainly engaged in the fluid cunning of her escape. It reminded him of a movie he once saw in which an adulterous couple, surprised in the act, respond by calmly rising from beneath the sheets. They make the bed and slip out of the room, out of the house. The outraged husband is left in the clutches of a finagled reality, the serene expanse of the smoothed-over crime. Trover had not yet decided what Louise's sin would be, and now that she was getting away, he had to think fast. You know me, he called in the direction of the bathroom and her fragile morning sounds. I worry about bad roads. No reply. He waited. Countless ways to get to this woman. This time he rounded his tones. Roses are red, violets are blue. Flush the hopper when you are through. What could be more maddening than that? And still, except for the amenable answering rush of the flushing John, not a peep out of her. He drew the blankets up to his chin. If he could sleep the week away, he'd wake with the worst of the trip behind him on the downside of trouble. Sleep would burn up grief like diesel. To the perfunctory sputter of tap water, he said, I refuse to jeopardize the lives of those two little kids. Too late to staunch the puling quality of his voice. His wife appeared, long and monotone, in the doorway. Look at me, Louise, he said. Do you think a simple man like my dad would expect blood, do you? I'll wake the kids, she said. Her face was benignly stern, the way they portray prairie women or the wives of great but difficult men, like his mother's face. Why was she pretending to be his mother? Who was she trying to kid? Her with a raw seam zippering her hips, ratted hair, head-to-toe beigeness, that long drink of Louise. Why couldn't she just fire up a cigarette like she always did first thing, and he could gag and cough and turn load and green if need be? Instead, she was throwing on a loose wrap and preparing to float away, trying to be a dream or a memory, and nothing about this morning was quite as solid as the thousands holding it up by threads, spun thin as a breath. He screwed his face tight. I'm not going. She whirled around, the fabric of her kimono twisting prettily along the tapering length of her. Get up, she said, before you shame yourself forever. My throat is scratchy. You should be spanked. Think about your poor mother. At first, the remark threw him. This woman, then, was not his mother. Somewhere his real mother waited. <laughs> Wanting something, but what could a decent mother decently expect from a boy who just lost his father? When he finally hauled his legs over the side of the bed, it came as almost a surprise that the size 10 shoes on the floor fit that the boy in the bathroom mirror had a mature, rather splendid red beard and mournful pouched eyes, the crumpled face, slumped weariness of a tired, middle-aged defender. It was him, all right. Trover trailed his wife downstairs where she began her meager kitchen ministrations. 
He took quick stock of the countertop. Some years back, he had embarked on a rapid-fire succession of bestseller diets. One of them required religiously strict attention to weights and measures. 62 grams fish, 8 grams parsley flakes. For breakfast, an unvarying quarter-cup cereal, 3 ounces fresh fruit, half-cup milk. Although Trover's diet phase eventually collapsed under the sheer weight of its painstaking, he continued to hold Louise to the original rituals of apportionment. Recently, she had inquired of him, if I submit to this busy work, then will I look silly enough to suit you? Louise, he said solemnly, you're the one you have to please. He'd caught her looking with that one, and then while she was still speechless, asked if he couldn't maybe have his cereal in a wine glass from now on. It had not escaped him that she often cheated on his portions anymore, serving up mere guesstimates, and nearly always she refused to dirty the stemware because it didn't ride well in the dishwasher. Today, though, much to his chagrin, the measuring cup and postage scale sat on a counter next to a sparkling Waterford goblet. He watched her shake mini wheats to the precise mark on the cup. Then she transferred the ponderously impecunious quantity to the pretty glass. With her usual awkward hacking whack, she sliced a banana onto the tiny scale. He was partial to thin and even. Ah, uniform slices, he said, are apparently too effing much to ask. <laughs> Whatever his methods, they continued to come up short. He moved away and stood against the trash compactor, one arm girding his middle, the other supporting his chin. He wanted her to think he was thinking. I know what, he said. Just... Uh, as though stu just what? <laughs> stumbling upon the subject. The sensible thing is to go back next week. By then she'll need company. Slipping a mini-week to the young be beagle begging at her feet, Louise said very quietly, this is purely outrageous. But Trover noted that the milk carton trembled in her pouring hand. Soon that lone tear would leap into the corner of her left eye, and wouldn't that be just the loose edge he required? It would be like pulling up the floor, boards cracking, chairs flying, everybody screaming bloody murder. And then what? Beyond that, he didn't have to see. For the moment, for his purposes, simple pandemonium would do. He, dr he drummed a rat-tat-tat rhythm with his pointer now on the range hood and addressed his wife's back. You're not planning to leave the kitchen looking like this. Like what? Making his gestures large and righteous, he humped twice around the room, cuffing at incongruities. For starters, this wrestling jacket. And this jump rope. That's your jump rope. Oh, God. These green stamps are stuck to the counter. And how long is that turtle shell going to sit around? The kids found that in the woods, she said protectively. Oh, I get it. A stray turtle shell. Well, by all means, let's give it a good home. He shook, he shook a paperback at her. And this greasy Guinness Book of World Records, kids find that in the woods too? She gave him a level look. Why don't you do your toilet paper number and get it out of the way? Shooting a trigger finger, he said, thanks, I think I will. With a grunt, he hurtled the glove and hat box and left the kitchen. Loping down the hall, he had a sudden flashing vision of himself looking small and pestilential in his clean white underduds, a well-kept, holy, indestructible brat. Humunculus T. Munchkin, Louise had called him once, and had not let on for a second that had considered himself flattered, nor that he knew she'd meant it that way. He found the toilet paper, as he'd expected, sitting defiantly on the lip of the sink. And when, he boomed through cupped fingers, was the last time you put the roll in the holder, Louise. The, the trick was to get her to actually answer questions like that. 
defending oneself turned a person into a defendant, and defendants, even innocent ones, were necessarily rabbity, panicked, and tongue-tied, in general, made a bad impression on themselves. What's more, it made her crazy to be held accountable for toilet paper management. Normally, it was a cinch to goad her into raging after him, foul-mouthed and murderous. I'm calling them right this minute, she'd shriek, referring, no doubt, to her private corps of hitmen. If he could... If he could bring her to that, he'd have what he wanted, a dangerous woman, a cutthroat, crime broker, dragon lady, to be avoided at all costs. Bounding back into the hall, he nearly collided with his son, Michael. Michael's real name was Banford, after Trover, whose real name was also Banford. He'd picked up Trover in law school, Trover from a legal cause of action. When his son was only several weeks old, Louise started calling him Michael Scott in a kind of playful parody of the current vogue in naming babies. Trover's wife was a pathological namer. She could not stop naming things again and again, especially what she loved, as if no one name could possibly suffice to honor all that a favored person was, as if a name were the truest touch of all. Every facet and every phase and every similitude had to be acknowledged, and each name containing its own dynamics went on then to ramify. The boy had endured his own endless progressions, Parsnip and Parsifal and Parsippany, Scuff and Tuff and Mr. Puffin, Fergus and Flute and McNertney. <laughs> his shoulder pressed a quick, self-conscious hug. He let his hand slide lingeringly down the length of Trover's arm in that slow, hesitant new way of his. At 16, he was at that startling stage of diminished roundness just before a boy firms to his final architecture. He was awkward, saucer-eyed, and despite his considerable strength, defenseless. Trover stepped back into the white November light. You have homework? Michael nodded warily. Guess it's against your religion to keep abreast of things. I won't be in school the rest of the week. No sweat. I got all next weekend to do it. How about wrestling practice? Starts tomorrow. Without you, good old Sparkle's plenty here doesn't have to work out. Dad, it's cool. I mean, a death in the family. Always got an answer, don't you? Want me to stay home by myself? Trover huffed twice, as if the boy were just too dense to be endured. They filed around the corner into the kitchen. Trover whipped a bald black satin garment off the counter and held it open. Yours? Across the back, in iridescent green letters that said, Windsor County All-Stars, 138-pounder. Well, is it? Michael lowered his eyes. Dad, you know it is. Dropping the jacket onto the boy's sneakers, he said, put it somewhere. Dad, said Michael, and their eyes met. Trover looked away. The pleading in Michael's gaze was not on his own behalf, but for his father to save himself. Sighing, Michael stooped to retrieve the coat. His bony white hands, smallish in fact for the gripping needs of a wrestler, bunched up the slick stuff of the jacket. The hands and the exposed surface of his bent neck caused Trover to wince. He swallowed and swallowed against whatever kept working in his throat. He blew into his fists. Nothing was panning out, not a single belligerent to be had. The one thing he had not figured on was his family's sudden ironclad protocol, the unwritten law of the civilized world. You don't fight with invalids or lunatics or people in mourning. After Michael left to hang up his coat, Louise drew her husband close to her side, furtively, the way you might confide to someone his fly is open. Remember, she whispered, when Bagel was a pup, how she used to chew the leg of the piano bench? With arch forbearance, 
Clover awaited the birth of a parable. Remember, remember how, whenever we would try to get her to confront the damage, she'd dig in her heels and have to be dragged to the spot. And even then, she'd have her head twisted back. You could not get her to look at it. The parable, thank God, was defective. My father's passing on, he said, is hardly a mess of my own making. Just the same, she said. That's how you behave when you refuse to face something. Ribbit, he said. Don't you ribbit me. Ribbit, he repeated. Oh, brother. She was standing with the tinny November light slicing sideways at her. The light crazed her skin, and the turn of her cheek reminded him of an old white restaurant cup. Very slowly, with just a hint of malice, she said, Should I go back without you again? He gave her a hard look, but her face held as enduringly fragile as the cold curve of a cracked cup. She glared back. He said, Was it my fault when your grandmother died I had to be in court all week? Still, she said nothing. Candy-ass nonsense, he thought, but now that she was dragging him back to the chewed wood, like it or not, he had to look, had to see more even than she wanted him to see. He saw her in the heat of July, getting into her precious hornet, getting first into the passenger side before remembering she was the old, only one old enough to drive. The kids already squabbling in the back seat, Trover had watched from the porch, keeping a conspicuous grip on his briefcase, the main prop to his cowardice. Louise came back around the front of the car, scuffling like a child, eyes dazed, and the party never told anybody. Not that he was wont to ever tell anybody anything, but the party tried not even to think about was this. As she went to step into the car, he saw the melted chocolate stuck to the seat of her pale summer dress, acquired, no doubt, during that short mistaken occupancy of the passenger seat. It was his, Trover's half-eaten Hershey bar, and he'd let her go like that, brownly soiled to a spotless woman's wake, a mess of his own making. Why hadn't he stopped and advised her? In a flash of insight as pitiless as the late autumn light, he saw now that indeed the time it would have taken her to change clothes could have broken him. He'd needed the lot of them gone post haste out of his sight with all the mourners of the world and all the dead and dying and guilt and sorrow. He wanted these and all related matters swept without delay from his green, green hill, his own heart discharged of obligation, the driveway made innocent again, a smooth country lane knowing nothing but the way to town and the way home. A mess of his own making, how did she always manage to nose so close to the worst of him without either knowing or trying? It enraged him, and the rage rushed him nicely past any temptation to relent. I'm not going anywhere trapped in a car with people whose only purpose in life is to pick me to pieces. I knew it. Mighty had come in, mighty knee Marianne. She stood, hands on hips, feet apart, eyes narrowed. She was watching her father with what might pass for clinical detachment, were it not for the slight crimp of disdain in her lower lip. I knew he'd pull something. Why the hell can't you just act like a human being, Trover? She tossed her head and strode forward. Do you too mind, she asked, forcing her parents apart to gain access to the cereal cupboard. Mighty's long hair had been darkening at the crown since summer. Freshly washed and blown dry, it broadcast fragrance and bothered air. Trover's daughter was beautiful. Michael came in and went to the refrigerator. No, what else doesn't seem right to me, said Mighty, throwing peevish tones in with a full line of crispies and flakes and checks. What's that, her mother said. Him running around in his BVDs on a day like today. Looks like he just escaped from someplace awful in the middle of the night. Trover threw up his arms, and at the same time, Michael turned away from the open refrigerator, holding a cut lemon. 
He gave his sister a sadly reproachful look. Can't you just let him alone when he loses his only father? The awkward phrasing lent his words a cast of archness and parody he could not have intended. Mighty said, you kidding, he doesn't give a rat's tooth. But Louise had taken hold of the girl's arm, digging her nails in hard enough to impress fair warning. Mighty unhanded herself. Look, Mom, at your funeral. Well, you know what I mean. You have to live with a little stinker. Panic danced behind Crower's eyes. Well, what about the dog, Louise? Get Bagel's leash, Michael. We'll take her along. We won't all fit in one car, Trover pressed. We'll take the Hornet. Hornet's a piece of junk. It'll make it to Lackawanna and back. I'm not going. In the end, of course, they all went. As Trover knew they would from the start, he knew as much even as he addled and deviled and danced his dances. They installed him in the back between Mighty and Michael. Bagel, who could be trusted, sat up front with Louise. Louise kept casting nervous glances over her shoulder as if he might still be expected to bolt any second. What was he if not a hostage in the bosom of his own family? As they peeled out between the two large fields, he noted dimly the plucked and stubbled landscape and that their man Sprecher was out in the cold mowing yellow grass. Wasn't this November and wasn't it threatening snow? And how suddenly open the land was, open as sky, haze in the distance, the horizon revoked, and nothing, nothing mediating between him and the unopposable outwardness of things. He closed his eyes. Well, they could drag him along, and they could wedge his butt between their bodies. They could chain him to the bumper if they wanted, but he'd be damned if they could block his departure. Before the hornet gained the highway, Trover Cleave was fast asleep in his son's arms. <laughs>